0: Well, when they teach preaching in seminary, they tell you to start your sermons with an attention grabber to get the people interested in the topic. But I think that when you're starting a sermon series on the first twelve chapters of Genesis and specifically preaching from Genesis 1, the topic does all the attention grabbing for you in our modern world. The text raises a lot of questions. That really matter to us, whether we are Christians or skeptics. And where do these questions begin? Well, how about in the opening words, in the beginning God created. You can't even get to the end of the first verse without asking the question, how long ago was that beginning that Genesis refers to? And then a few verses down, there was evening and morning the first day, well, what kind of day was it? And how much time was there between the days of creation? Are there gaps? Were they long days? Were they literal days? Or were they literary days in a story? And that's just trying to understand the literal meaning of the words on the page. But I don't even think that scratches the surface for the kinds of questions that we have. Because I think as modern readers, as we look at this, I think we're asking the question of fit. That is, how does the creation stories, how do the creation stories fit with modern scientific theories of origin? I think I still have your attention, by the way. Let me say this up front, that these questions of how, how long ago did God create the universe, how long were the days of creation? How did God create the various life forms and species on earth? These are not the questions that, ans- that Genesis wants to answer for us. And while these questions are important and worthy of serious thought and discussion, quite frankly, they are surface level compared to the questions Genesis really wants to answer If we look to answer the questions of how, when we look at this passage, we're going to be disappointed, but worse, we're probably going to miss the point, because Genesis answers questions that are bigger than the narrowest interests of scientific inquiry. It answers questions that people have asked since the beginning of time, across all cultures and language, whether pre-modern or post-modern, it's doing something much, much bigger. This week, I read a remarkable insight from Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger about the durability of Genesis. He makes the point that What Genesis provides has has outlasted the view of the universe from the time of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Hellenistic age. And not only that, Genesis has kept up with the major scientific revolutions from uh, 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 from the Greek view of the world, from the Copernican revolution, all the way to quantum physics. Just think about that. Genesis is pre-scientific, and yet it has not been displaced by modern science. That is an endurable, uh, that is a durable view of the universe. So, how are we to understand the difference between what science is after and what God is doing in Genesis? To start, We might say, science struggles to answer the question, how did things come to be? But Genesis boldly proclaims, in the beginning, God created. Science develops models about how some things in the world work, and Genesis tells us why there is something rather than nothing in the first place. Sciences can tell us what things in creation are made of in biology and chemistry and how they work in physics. Genesis tells us the ultimate purpose behind all things and all human activity, including biology, chemistry, and physics itself. In short, science seeks to answer how, and Genesis answers the question, why and for what purpose? Both forms of knowledge are important, but Genesis, Scripture, the gospel gives us the knowledge that every person and every age was created to know and need to know, namely who God is, the one who made them. Now, more than that, For scientific discovery to continue, it must rely on the foundational ideas drawn from Genesis 1, namely that the laws of nature are orderly, that is they can be logically and mathematically described, that they are unchanging, that is the laws of nature remain consistent across time. That they're intelligible and known through human cognition and reasoning. That is, we're able to understand the laws of nature and what we are observing is not our imagination, but is really there. Now, if the universe was created through a blind, chaotic, cosmic accident, then how do we explain such an orderly working of reality? Speaking to a skeptic, I would say this, isn't it possible that the order and reliability of the natural world would reflect the mind of a rational and orderly creator? You see, a person can deny the existence of God But every time a scientist sits down at her bench and gets to work, she is living by faith in some power or person greater than her understanding that made and maintains the orderly universe that she studies. So now as we get into this passage, I want to notice several things with you, that first Although Genesis 1 doesn't give us a scientific account of reality, its claims are real. It speaks truth for all time. And Genesis 1 is poetic. The text is filled with repetition and images of speech. Genesis 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, is a single literary unit, like a poem. And one uh, scholar I read, uh, Gordon Wenheim, in, in his work, notes that the number seven and multiples of seven stand out from the text. God creates the world in seven days. Earth is mentioned 21 times. God's name is mentioned 35 times. The number seven in Hebrew signifies a number of completion or com- perfection. And like a poem, Genesis, says, Genesis 1 says so much with so few words, and with such beauty and order." I hope you heard that this morning as we read it responsively, just the beauty and cadence of the passage. But Genesis 1 is also prose. It's the true story of how God, the King and Creator of the universe, made this world good and fitting for His dwelling. The universe is God's temple, and humanity is, is the priesthood that represents God on earth to the rest of creation. But Genesis 1 is also a polemic. It's a critical attack that comes out swinging. In Genesis 1, we discover that in contrast to the gods of the surrounding nations, the God of Israel is truly sovereign, while the gods of the nations are powerless. And this last observation that Genesis 1 is a polemic really helps us make sense of the importance of this passage to the people who first heard it originally. So, here's the context. This material was first given to Moses and the people of God when they came out of Egypt. After 400 years of slavery, God's people had no memory of who they were anymore. Their identity had lacked definite form. They were a free people, but they were lost. Their life had a deep void. Does that sound familiar to you? In the past couple of years, there have been a slew of articles commenting on the sense of lostness and disconnectedness people feel nowadays. For many, virtual reality has replaced the concrete connection that used to be found in faith and especially in younger generations. There are fewer people who identify with, uh, with, with a faith tradition or even belong to a religious tradition at all, yet alone Christianity. Sadly, there are many people who are walking around who look like on the outside everything is put together, but on the inside they are in despair. And similar to the Hebrews, they've forgotten who they are and they don't know the one to whom they ultimately belong. And that's what Genesis seeks to answer. Listen to how God breathes hope into a hopeless people in the opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth… Was without form and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Knowing who God is unlocks the mystery of what is true and who we are and to whom we belong. Thirty five times God's name is mentioned in this passage. That is the key to know who we are. It's about God. And for the Hebrews, these opening lines were like diamonds that sparkle in contrast to the gray, surrounding around, uh, the gray terrain around them. The answers given here are beautiful jewels for them to be discovered. In the beginning, God, atheism is ruled out. God is before everything. First there is God, and then there is everything else. God created the heavens and the earth. First atheism is ruled out. Now materialism is toppled. There is more to this life than what can be captured by the naked eye or made by human hands because the Spirit is what makes matter matter. All matter matter points to the reality of our Maker. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit that made all matter isn't distant from creation. God is immense, but He is personal. He isn't the man upstairs or the big man, or even the universe sending vibes. The Spirit of God is personal. He sticks close to His creation. He hovers over the deep like an eagle over her hatchlings in her nest to warm and to protect them. And for 400 years of slavery, after 400 years of slavery, God must have felt pretty far to His people. But as far as God can feel from us sometimes, Genesis teaches us that although God is above and beyond us, He has always been near to His creation since the beginning of time. In the creation myths of Babylon and Egypt, the real world came about through conflict between the gods, bloodshed, violence, chaos, darkness, that's what spun the universe in motion. And many people still think that's what makes the world go round. It's just a doggy-dog world. It's just the way that it is. So many people believe that. But Genesis shows us that's not the way things are supposed to be because that's not how they were in the beginning. The universe wasn't made by chaos or cutthroat competition it was made by divine cooperation the father with his word and by the spirit and perfect unity and love created the universe and still keeps the universe together Deeper than our fragmentation, deeper than our polarization of our culture is the unity and love of God that upholds all things together in place. In the beginning, all that God made was good. It was blessed by Him. And at its root, creation is not rebellious. It reflects God's goodness and love, His personal goodness and love. Are you starting to see that no one else can do what God can do? No one else can create the way that God creates. Let's look at this more closely. In verse 1, we learn that God creates the heaven and earth without reference to any pre-existing material. He creates all things from nothing. No one else can do that except God. And then in the second verse, we learn that he fashions the complexity of the universe from a formless void. Unlike the gods of the nations that had to emerge from the deep or conquer the deep to create, the formless void is like clay in God's hands. Creation from nothing. And with that nothingness, with that emptiness, with that void, God creates everything. God doesn't need something to work with. He can work with nothing just fine. Now, what we have in the rest of this creation account is a record of how God, first of all, fashions that formlessness. Do you see that? In day one, He forms the light and separates it from the darkness. In day two, He forms the sea and the sky and in day three, He forms the fertile earth. We may think of it this way. In the first three days of creation, God builds the shelving for the universe. And then the next three days, He stocks it. Because on day four, He creates the sun and the stars for the day and for the night. He creates creatures for the water and the air on day five. And on day six, he creates animals and finally humanity for the land. First he forms and then he fills. You know, the work of full-time ministry is often referred to as the Lord's work. He's a pastor, as my mom loves to say. He's a pastor now. He's doing the Lord's work. she's a a missionary. She's doing the Lord's work. People say things like, oh, that family, they're serving way out in yonder, doing the Lord's work. And they are. All those people are doing the Lord's work, for sure. But based on Genesis 1, what do we discover is the Lord's work? He uses raw materials And he creates. He brings order where there is disorder. He brings light where there is darkness. All human work that creates or contributes or arranges and orders or brings light where there is darkness is the Lord's work. One of the great doctrines that was rediscovered during the Protestant Reformation was this that it's not just the clergy's work, but all work is sacred and ordained by God. So if you bring order to a department in chaos, you are doing the Lord's work. If you build things with with your hands, you are doing the Lord's work if your job is to oversee a household and make sure that the teeth are brushed, the lunch is at hand, and the homework is in the backpack, you are doing the Lord's work. You are bringing order where order is needed. I almost said chaos, but I realized my wife might be listening to this right now. I didn't want to say that. If we work with people or work with natural materials, or work with things built by human hands in the backyard, in the office, or at school. It all matters to God. And since it all matters to God, it is all worth doing well, just like He did at the beginning of creation. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. was after when he wrote these words. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, He should sweep the streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job so well. Now you'll notice... That not only in the sequence of creation that God follows a pattern, but each day within itself, there's symmetry. Look at how this works in the days of creation. It starts with God's call. God said, let there be. And then what he calls to be is then created. And so it was. And after it was created, we get God's consideration God saw that it was good, and then we get the conclusion there was evening and morning. You see the symmetry in which God creates all things? It's remarkable to note that God's speech is His action. And interesting to note that ten times we have in this passage, God said, and it was, ten authoritative words like we have in the Ten Commandments which we encounter later on in the Torah and Exodus and Deuteronomy. You know, all of us, I think, have had experiences where our words have had limited impact. Maybe at home with the family or at the office when you're trying to share your ideas or when you're trying to get this, the attention of fellow students, human speech, unlike God's speech in creation, has limitations. And the closest our human speech does to what God does here is, for example, when a man and a woman stand before God and uh, before God in witnesses and makes promises to each other in their wedding vows. Creates a new reality through words. Or when a baby is born and we name them. You see, sometimes our human words mimic God and we are able to make new realities, but only God's Word has the ability to create concrete things. He speaks and it is so. And it's God's good pleasure to create and bless and to delight in His creation. You know, it's always been the case that when people encounter creation, It makes them marvel and consider the reality of transcendence. But we must never stop at the beauty of creation, right? We must go forward, take that next step because this creation calls us to the praise of our Creator and deep down everyone knows that. The dental practice I visited for some reason has huge flat screen TVs on the ceiling I guess it's to distract you while your teeth are being clean. But for some reason, they always show these animal kingdom shows, you know, the ones I'm talking about, the ones with the narrator that says something like this, and the hyena's corner of the zebra, and the poor zebra is running for its life, something like that, all right? I guess they show these documentaries because they want you to realize how good you have it in your life that even though they're treating your mouth like a construction site, it's re- you really could be like the zebra out there. Well, during one of these wildlife shows, the, hy- the hygienist stopped and remarked on the beauty of the sudden movements of a school of fish. Just stopped what he was doing, and a smile came across his face, I can tell from under the mask. And I said to him, if you think they're amazing, what would you think about their creator? Except it didn't sound that clear because I had cotton in my mouth and Novocaine. I was a drooling mess, but I kept on trying to say this to him. I kept, I wasn't gonna miss an opportunity, folks. And finally, when the hygienist heard what I said, he said, I would say that he is good. See, seeing the beauty of creation, when we contemplate the beauty of creation, it's not too far off from contemplating the beauty of God. Psalm 104, verses 24 and 25 says this, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all! The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both great and small. That's what the hygienist was doing without even realizing that, marveling in God's creation in that way. Now, that's the response when we just consider other created things in God's world. We haven't even considered the chief creation of God, namely humanity, and next week we're going to look at that more closely. But at the end of the creation days, We discover that God is at rest in the world, and humanity is in perfect communion with Him. But John's Gospel says this: people love darkness rather than light. The emptiness and the void threatened—that threatened—that was a part of God's good creation now rear its head again in history through sin and death. And once again, the Word of God would enter and display both His creative and redemptive power. In the movie, In the Passion of the Christ, as Jesus' body is beaten and ravaged on His way to Golgotha, His mother Mary finds Him, and He looks at her and He says, Mary, behold, I am making all things new. Now in the Bible, that's not where Jesus says that. It's in Revelation at the end of time where He will create a new heavens and a new earth. But it is a beautiful picture of what Jesus had started to do on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ destroyed the chaotic power of our sins that wreak havoc in our world. He buried them in His death. And three days later, on the first day of a new week, when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, a new creation week started in our world. Jesus' death was the beginning work of the new creation that He will complete when He returns in glory at the end of time. You know, earlier I said that Genesis 1 is poetry, it's prose, it's a polemic, but it is actually everything. It is everything, because for the Christian, it proclaims the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, "...for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ." Is your life overcome by darkness today? Are you like the people of God coming out of Egypt without light? You feel that there is a void that cannot be filled. Jesus Christ, the one who made all things at the beginning, is making all things new for us and for the world. This morning, do you believe that through the power of the gospel, Jesus can give us new life and dispel the darkness that is in our hearts due to sin? Like the people of God long ago, we need to hear in our day that knowing this God is what leads to true flourishing in life. That while we live in a, in, in a confused and mixed up culture Jesus Christ offers a new and secure beginning every time we turn to Him. He is in the business of creation and new creation. And may that be what gives us our hope as we enter this new week together. Our Creator is our Redeemer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As I close in prayer, invite the communion servers to come forward and be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but as you did in creation's beginning, you have shown your glorious light in your gospel, and you have made us new. Lord God, we thank you that we now meet with you as we remember your death and resurrection in this communion meal together. In your name, amen.